0: Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey guys, this is Nick here, owner of Part-Time Pilot, home of the best ground school, online ground school for private pilots in the world. Today's episode, episode number four, we're going to continue audio ground school lessons and we're going to be on, so we're working out of our online ground school and we're in section two, operations of aircraft systems, we're going to be on Lesson 6 of that section, going over vacuum systems. And then eventually, we'll probably also get to Lesson 7, pedostatic systems. And again, if you haven't listened to the first few episodes, if you can hear that right now, that's a plane coming in. Um, I am at San Diego International Airport, and I decided to leave the plane sounds in uh, because of, you know, this is a pilot podcast. So uh, why not? That ambiance make you feel like you're at the airport with me. Anyways, so... Yeah, again, we're in section two. Section one, we covered in episode one. That's just the introduction, how to use the course, uh, what you need, working with your instructor, stuff like that. So if you want to know how to get started, what you need, all that stuff, just go to section one. And then if you want to get in online ground school so you can follow along, do the quizzes, see the mnemonic devices, the figures, the diagrams, the examples, the videos, all that stuff in the online ground school, just go to parttimepilot.com. All right, so let's get into Lesson 6 of Section 2, Vacuum Systems. So in the last lesson in the electrical system, we talked about how connected to the engine via a belt was the alternator. So so we're using that rotational motion of the engine to power different components like our alternator, which creates electricity and powers all, all our electrical components as well as charging our battery but also connected to the engine is an engine driven vacuum pump the vacuum pump is used to create the vacuum needed for gyroscopic instruments to work properly the common gyroscopic instruments in most aircraft like Cessna or Cherokee warrior are the attitude indicator and the heading indicator the turn coordinator can also be used as a vacuum powered from a vacuum powered gyro but it is sometimes used or powered electrically. So it depends on your aircraft, know your aircraft and know whether that turn coordinator is powered by the vacuum or powered electrically. And the reason you want to know that is because if that stops working, does that point to an issue with the vacuum system or does that point to electrical issue? And these are the type of things that you as a, a safe competent pilot need to know. So the engine drives a connected vacuum pump anytime during engine operation. The pump then creates a pressure differential between the air inlet in the cabin and the vent of the pump, which causes the air to be pulled through the instruments. So the instruments are in between. So think of vacuum as a system. If you're looking, if you're in the online ground school, you'll be able to see this diagram. So you have the start of the system is the air inlet in the cabin, and the, the end of the system is the vent. And the air is going to flow in through the inlet, all the way out through the vent. And in between that, you have other components, which we'll get to, and some of those components are the instruments. So we're drawing air in through the inlet, through the instruments, and then out the vent. And it's all being drawn through or powered by that pump, which is connected to the engine. Cabin air, because it's clean, so we want clean air and so that's usually why we draw it from the cabin it enters the air inlet and passes through a vacuum air filter so again we really want it to be clean air because it can really mess up the gyros any little uh, dirt in there can really screw up your gyros so we got to make sure it's clean air so it, the first thing it passes through is an air filter gets any of that debris that dust out of there the air then flows through the filter and flows into and out of vacuum powered instruments so comes into the inlet through the filter cleans the air and then it goes into each of the vacuum powered instruments and it powers the gyroscopes inside each of the instruments the air also flows through the vacuum gauge to give the pilot a reading of the vacuum pressure so this is what you'll have on your dashboard you'll have a little vacuum gauge that tells you the suction of your vacuum system and you want that suction to be within a specific range for your aircraft and that is an indicator of whether your vacuum system is working well or not. So That's kind of in line with the instruments. The air also flows through the vacuum gauge after the air flows through the instruments it flows through a regulator designed to regulate the flow through the various ranges of RPM. So if you remember when we talked about the electrical system in the last episode of the podcast, we talked about that there's a regulator on the alternator. Since the alternator and the vacuum pump are being powered by the engine, the engine spins at different speeds, right? When we change the RPM, it's going to speed up. When we increase the RPM and when we decrease the RPM, it's going to spin slower, right? So that can be dangerous When And that's not what we want when it comes to powering components. We want like a steady flow of air in our vacuum system. And then for our electrical system, we don't want a big surge of electricity into our electrical components because it could um, cause a short. So just like the electrical system had a regulator, the vacuum system has a regulator. And it's usually positioned after. So the flow of air comes into into the inlet or through the air filter, through the instruments... And then it goes through a regulator and this regulator regulates that flow so that you get a constant flow of what we want that can power the instruments because gyros are very precisely calibrated to have a specific flow so that regulator has to be working and it has to be working well once it goes through the regulator it then uh that's where the pump sits so that pump Is driving, it's sucking air all the way through the air filter, the instruments, and the regulator. And the regulator is regulating that flow. All right. Finally, so it flows into that engine-driven vacuum pump and then out of the air vent back into the atmosphere. So that completes the cycle of the vacuum system. So to follow again, if you're in the online ground school, you can go to this lesson and see this diagram. It's very, very helpful. Clean air comes in through the cabin. It goes through and gets cleaned by the vacuum air filter. It goes into the instruments, powers the gyros in each of the instruments, flows through the instruments, uh, goes through the regulator to regulate that flow, and then finally it reaches the pump, and then the pump vents it out the other side of the pump. And that pump is being, of course, powered by the engine. So it sits somewhere on the engine, somewhere on the back of the engine. And again, you should know... Um, where you can point that out uh, so you can know it on your aircraft and check it before every flight. So the first instrument I want to talk about of the vacuum system is probably one of, I mean, every instrument is important, but the attitude indicator is very, very important because if you lose visibility, this indicator is going to save your life. So the attitude indicator is very important. It gives simultaneous view of an artificial horizon and aircraft, that is powered by a gyro, giving real-time pitch and bank attitudes of the aircraft. As mentioned elsewhere in this course, in the event of a vacuum system failure, the heading and attitude indicator will be lost. And then again, if your turn coordinator is powered by the vacuum system, it would also be lost. In this situation, the compass can be used to replace the heading indicator, while the airspeed indicator, VSI, and turn coordinator can be used to replace the attitude indicator. But the combination of airspeed indicator, VSI, and turn coordinator is a lot to look at, a lot to process to come up with an attitude picture of your aircraft. That's why the attitude indicator is so nice to have. But if you lose that, you're going to have to use those other indicators to try and figure out and understand what the attitude of your aircraft is. While flying in VFR with GPS, VORs, Compass, and outside reference points, the heading indicator becomes much less important to pilots. The attitude indicator, however, can be a significant loss to pilots should the vacuum system or gyros fail. The attitude indicator uses the gyroscope powered by the previously mentioned vacuum system. The gyro creates an artificial horizon while simultaneously displaying both pitch and bank of the aircraft. Pitch is marked by 5 degrees So you can see this in the image that we have in the online ground school. So if you're following along, go check that out on the lesson. Pitch is marked by 5 degrees, which is the small lines, and 10 degrees, which is the larger lines. And those are the lines that go up the artificial sky above the horizon, above and below the horizon. And then we have roll, which is marked by small lines at every 10 degrees, and larger lines every 30 degrees. And then you'll even have 40-degree dot or triangle and a 60 degree large like the largest line and those will kind of arc around the artificial sky so that when you roll that there's a little triangle that points to one of those roll angles and then there's also a white triangle at the top that kind of shows you directly at the top when the roll triangle is matched up with that it means your wings are level so i can tell you the attitude of of your roll as well as pitch so the attitude indicator is made up of two components. There's the hard shell of the attitude indicator itself, and then connected to that is an artificial aircraft. So it kind of pokes up, and there's a dot in the center, and then two wings to the left or right. And then behind that, kind of in the background of that, is the artificial horizon and the artificial sky. Those are held in place by the gyro. Instrument and the fake airplane are are rigid with your aircraft, so that when your aircraft turns to the right, the instrument and the artificial aircraft are also going to turn to the right at the same kind of rate and speed, and then also same to the left or same pitch up and down. But what doesn't move is that that gyro-powered artificial horizon and sky, so that what you get, artificial aircraft moving with your aircraft, around that artificial horizon so it's like just like you're looking out the window at the horizon and almost as if you're looking from right behind your aircraft seeing it pitch up down to the left or right against that horizon so it's a very very useful and cool instrument so on that artificial aircraft the wingtips are going to show the direction of bank by the relationship of the artificial airplane and the horizontal bar of the artificial horizon. So like i said when you turn the instrument turns and that artificial aircraft turns And then it's going to, the wingtips are going to line up with the roll indication lines along the outside of the instrument. And it's also going to make an angle with that artificial horizon. That angle between the artificial aircraft and the artificial horizon is going to be your roll angle. A dot in the center of the artificial aircraft will point to the markings in the middle of the indicator, the pitch up or pitch down, which are the horizontal markings behind the aircraft. The artificial aircraft and they show the pitch attitude of the aircraft if the dot is above the artificial horizon the pilot immediately knows that the aircraft knows is pitched up in relation to that horizon or the actual horizon and vice versa if the dot is below the artificial horizon then knows it's pitched below the actual horizon so we're using that horizon to kind of tell us that we are our level and then if the dot in our attitude indicator is up or below that artificial horizon then the nose of our aircraft will do the same with the actual horizon with the nose level to the outside horizon the dot should be right smack dab on the top of the horizontal artificial horizon in your instrument and during your ground and pre-flight the attitude indicator should be adjusted to show this so that when so when you're on the ground you're doing your pre-flight you want to make sure that your attitude indicator that dot in the center shows that your wings are level and you're pitched level with the horizon as I mentioned previously, the attitude indicator is of critical importance if visibility is lost, and all pilots must understand how to use this to keep their aircraft coordinated in these situations. During VFR flight, a vacuum system fail- failure is not necessarily an emergency by itself because the inoperable instruments can be replaced by using the sight picture outside the cockpit as well as other instruments, right? So you can use the actual horizon that you see outside your aircraft, you can compare the actual nose. That you can see outside your aircraft with the actual horizon that you can see however if a vacuum system fails during ifr flight or flight or maybe it's a vfr flight and there's unexpected poor visibility then this is an emergency in poor visibility conditions a pilot may lose sight of the horizon when this happens the pilot's different senses of motion can become confused the pilot can get sick or think the aircraft is in a different orientation than it actually is and without an attitude indicator there is no way to know what is right or wrong. This is actually what happened to John F. Kennedy Jr., who was the former president of the United States' son, uh, You know, JFK. His son was an avid pilot, and while flying over the ocean at night one time with his family, he suffered spatial disorientation and put his aircraft into a dangerous dive into the water without even knowing it. So what happens in this situation is when you you have no visibility and your aircraft, if the movements are not sudden and there's no acceleration, your body does not feel it. So the kinesthetic, the vestibular senses of your body in a slow acceleration do not feel it. So you can be flying in bad visibility. If you don't trust your instruments, your aircraft can slowly, slowly, slowly move into a bad attitude. It could even become almost upside down. And if you don't trust your instruments and are looking at your instruments to see and understand what the actual attitude of the aircraft is, you might not even feel that. And that's exactly what happened to JFK Jr. A very sad story. The moral of it is that losing an attitude indicator with poor visibility is an absolute emergency. The attitude indicator is also a helpful tool in practicing unusual attitudes with your instructor. And to do this, your instructor will make you close your eyes and put your head down he or she will then put the aircraft into an unusual attitude, such as banking dive with low power or vertical climb with low power or high power. Maybe then he or she's going to tell you to take control of the aircraft and it's your job. So you'll lift your head up and you, they might also have you have foggles on foggles or these special glasses that they make it so that you can't see the top half of your vision so that you can't see outside the window your cockpit window and you can only look down and see your instruments so it forces you to look at your instruments and it's your job to figure out as quickly as possible what the attitude of the aircraft is and what steps need to be made to correct to straighten level flight so how do we do this now I know this is early in our ground school, so but I'm, I'm still gonna go over it to give you an idea of how you use your attitude indicator and why it's so important. Uh, we'll cover these you know later as well, but it's important to, to cover these now. Again, as I said, to give you an example of of the attitude indicator and how that works. So to diagnose a nose high attitude, look at the attitude indicator to see the dot of your artificial aircraft in the blue. So the blue of the artificial horizon is the sky when you see the dot in the blue that's nose to the sky and it will be surrounded by much more blue occupying the space of the instrument you also see the airspeed decreasing on the airspeed indicator as well as possibly the VSI increasing also you will want to determine the bank of your aircraft from the attitude indicator by noticing which wing is dipped to the ground and in the artificial horizon the ground is usually colored brown and which is tipped up to the sky, which is again is blue. So to recover from a nose high attitude, you'll simultaneously add full power while leveling the wings and lowering the nose to the horizon with the yoke. You may also wanna use the turn coordinator and the ball on the turn coordinator to coordinate your the leveling of your wings with the rudder. And we'll get to that again later. It's a little too advanced for you right now. And we're gonna talk about the turn coordinator and how that involves the rudder in a bit. To diagnose a nose low attitude, Look at the attitude indicator to see the dot of your aircraft, your artificial aircraft, in the brown. That means your nose is to the ground, surrounded by much more brown occupying the space of the instrument. You will also see the airspeed increasing on the airspeed indicator, as well as possibly the VSI decreasing. Also, you will want to determine the bank of your aircraft, just as we did before, from the attitude indicator by noticing which wing is dipped to the ground or the brown and which tipped to the blue or the sky of the artificial horizon and ground to recover from a nose low attitude bring the power to idle then level the wings before recovering from the dive if you attempt to bring the nose up to the horizon before bringing the power to idle and leveling the wings you will likely overstress the aircraft because you're in a dive and if you try to level out the aircraft immediately you might be traveling at too high a speeds that the stress and the g-forces on that pull-up will overstress and cause damage to your aircraft. So you wanna make sure to bring the power back so that you have low power when you make that recovery. Diagnosing and recovering from these unusual attitudes will come in handy when flying low visibility. In fact, your flight instructor will practice this with you by making you wear foggles, as I mentioned before, the special glasses, so that you can only see the instruments. You will also be tested on this during your checkride. So remember, ground is brown and sky is blue. If attitude indicator shows your aircraft in the brown, then your nose is pointed down. And if your aircraft, official aircraft is in the blue, then your nose is pointed up to the sky. All right, so that's been the attitude indicator. The next instrument of the vacuum system that I wanna talk about is the heading indicator. As observed in the vacuum system diagram in the online ground school, or I will post a link to a video in the show notes, which you can see this. The heading indicator is also powered by this vacuum system. It has a gyro that's vacuum powered. And if a pilot sees a failure of both their heading and attitude indicators, then it's a good sign that there's a problem with the vacuum system. The heading indicator is used to determine the aircraft direction in order to help pilots with navigation. The vacuum system powers a gyroscope, which spins around its fixed point along with the aircraft. So if the aircraft moves left or right, the gyro senses any rotation about the vertical axis and translates this motion into movement of the needle on the face of the indicator. Gyro heading indicators are not north seeking indicators, meaning that they will not try to find and point to the north like a a magnetic compass does. Instead, a pilot has to set the heading indicator to match the magnetic compass when the compass has minimal errors. We'll get to this in a couple lessons, but magnetic compasses are awesome because they're not powered electrically. They're not powered by a vacuum system or a pedostatic system or anything like that. So they almost never fail. They're only going to fail if you break them or if the Earth's magnetic field goes out, which I hope that never happens. So they're great in that regard, but they have limitations in that there's many errors. There's variation, there's deviation, and then there's what we call magnetic dip. And again, we'll get to that in a little bit. But to avoid all those errors, you have to be in straight and level flight. So when you match your heading indicator with the compass, you wanna make sure that it's either on the ground or in straight and level unaccelerated flight so that there's no errors in the compass. That way you know that you're matching your heading with a compass without any errors. Although the heading indicator once set has less errors than the magnetic compass, it does not mean that it is air free. A directional gyro indicator can be subject to two possible errors. One is called tumble and one is called precession. So let's talk about those for a bit. Tumble, this is unlikely to occur for you as a student pilot or a private pilot but it's much more common for acrobatic airplanes. With such sudden and dynamic movements about all axes, the heading indicator gyro can lose track of its axis and start to tumble around, which causes the needle of the indicator to spin wildly. So if that ever happens, and your heading indicator is just spinning out of control, then you likely have tumble going on, and you wanna basically stop that spinning from happening somehow and kind of reset your instrument. The next error is called precession, And this is something you're definitely going to see as a private pilot or a student pilot. And as soon as you set the heading indicator to match the magnetic compass, the heading indicator starts to accumulate air. And its reading begins to get further and further away from matching the magnetic compass and being accurate. This air accumulation is slow, but builds up to a large enough air over 15 to 30 minutes of flight. So what causes precession? Well, friction inside the instrument, as well as the earth spinning at 15 degrees per hour is the source of the air. So both of these things are small errors, but when combined over time, they accumulate. So accumulation means the air gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until finally, after about 30 minutes or so, it's a noticeable difference and it's a noticeable error that you wanna correct. So it's recommended that a pilot reset his or her heading indicator about every 15 to 30 minutes when flying. And again, to do that, you want to be in straight and level on accelerated flight and match it with the magnetic compass. In the online ground school, you can see a picture of the heading indicator and what that looks like. And it's a pretty simple instrument, but understanding the airs is of critical importance to make sure your navigation is accurate and that you know how to use your instrument. The next instrument I want to talk about is the turn coordinator. Now I mentioned that in some aircraft, this is powered by the vacuum system, but in another aircraft, it's powered electrically. So you wanna know for your aircraft how that's powered so that you can understand when it fails, that might may point to a vacuum system error or an electrical system error. And it'll help you better troubleshoot that issue. A turn coordinator displays information about the movement of the aircraft about the roll and yaw axes. It also provides several markings for a pilot to use for accurate turns. One of those markings is the standard rate turn marking. This can be for a two minute turn, which is most common, or a four minute turn. It is usually marked on the indicator, as in the figure below or the figure in our online ground school. For example, with a two minute standard rate turn coordinator entering a turn and stopping with the wingtip of the white artificial aircraft touching the standard rate turn notches on the indicator, a pilot can fly a standard rate turn of three degrees per second and complete a complete circle in two minutes furthermore a turn coordinator uses an inclinometer to determine the quality of a turn but by providing yaw information this is displayed as a black ball so if you ever heard step on the ball in relation to rudder control this is the ball that they're talking about the ball in the center of the turn coordinator this ball is located below the artificial white aircraft on your turn coordinator again in the online ground school you can see what I'm talking about we have a turn coordinator labeled with everything on it uh, labeled so when your flight instructor tells you you know step on the ball what he or she means is that they want you to input rudder pedal on the same side that the ball is so they're on the turn coordinator there's going to be two lines in the center and you want to keep your ball in between those two lines when you're not coordinated the ball is going to either move to the left or right of that those center points and if it's to the right if the balls to the right you want to step on the right rudder and move the nose to the right so that you can coordinate your turn and bring that ball when you do that when you push on the right rudder you're going to see that ball slowly move back towards the center so that's what your instructor means by stepping on the ball and obviously to the left it would be the same if the ball's to the left you step on the left rudder to again move that ball back to the center and coordinate your turn The final instrument of a vacuum system is the vacuum suction gauge. A vacuum vacuum suction gauge can be found on most general aviation aircraft, and this gauge, along with the vacuum system enunciator lights and the functionality of the vacuum instruments that we just spoke about, allows a pilot to determine the health of their vacuum system. The vacuum gauge measures the difference in the ambient or outside air pressure and the pressure inside the vacuum line, and again, we have a diagram of this vacuum system that you can see where that vacuum gauge sits and what it's reading and how it's reading the difference between, again, the ambient and the vacuum pressures. The pressure difference created inside the vacuum line by the vacuum pump, again, that remember that pump is connected to the engine and it's sucking air in, creating that vacuumed air line. And this pressure difference created by that allows the gyroscopes to spin at their designated spin rates. Because of this, it is important that the vacuum system be operating in the correct pressure range. For a Cessna 172, the desired suction range is between 4.5 and 5.5 inches of mercury, which can be read off the vacuum suction gauge. For a Piper Arrow, the desired suction range is between 4.8 and 5.1 inches of mercury. This information will also be listed in the approved POH for your aircraft. Furthermore, if the vacuum suction gauge reading drops to zero, it is, it is a clear sign that there is a problem with your vacuum pump, i.e. it's not creating any pressure difference from the atmosphere. If the gauge goes above the desired range, about you know 5.5 inches of mercury in a Cessna, there is likely a clog in the air filter or vacuum line. A typical vacuum suction gauge reads in inches of mercury. We show a picture of it in the online ground school. So... That's one of the things that you're going to check when you power on your aircraft and you're doing your your taxi checks. You want to check that, that suction on your vacuum system. You want to check it at an idle RPM, and then you want to check it during your rev up at a higher RPM. Make sure that suction sort of stays the same within that range determined by the manufacturers of your aircraft, which, again, will be mentioned in the approved AFM or POH of your aircraft. All right, so that's been the vacuum system. Thank you all for listening. I hope you guys had learned some things. And I'm going to put how the vacuum system works, our video, in the link into the show notes so you can watch that and you can get the visual cues of what i just mentioned and what i talked about if you guys want to follow along and you want to test the knowledge that you just learned we have a quiz at the end of this lesson in our online ground school so if you want to do that you want to take that quiz follow along with us you can see your grades you can review your quiz questions and then for every quiz question we have a answer explanation so when you get it wrong you know why you got it wrong and you know why that was the wrong answer so if you want to do that, just go to parttimepilot.com and then in the menu click on online ground school and we'll you'll see you in there. So again, thanks everybody for listening, and I'll see you next week for the next episode. And that will be we're gonna continue section two, operation of aircraft systems. And lesson the next lesson is gonna be lesson seven, the pedostatic system. I know for a fact that's a pretty big lesson, so that episode will probably be completely devoted to the pedostatic system. If for some reason we get through it quickly, then the next lesson, lesson eight, will be on the magnetic compass. So we'll see you guys. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant, because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time. Everything's great and damn. Once you get into, you know, bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for bravo clearance or cross country flight planning and flying solo on a cross country flight things get a little more advanced. And when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to start to get behind the aircraft. And when this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead 50, 60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And at and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gained, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost. And you're going to have to redo those lessons. And what happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings. Until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this, and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern-day student pilot. i say modern day student pilot i should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24 7 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working so most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job we have kids we have family we have school we have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern-day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You want to avoid or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community either their FAA written or their FAA check ride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you wanna come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on online ground school and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening and I'll see you guys next week.